1882, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche triumphantly declared that God is dead. And what he meant by that was that the philosophies that have flown out of the Enlightenment had made it intellectually impossible for anyone to believe in the Christian God, and Nietzsche's assumption was that in just a few years, kind of Christianity as it was known in practice would fade away as more and more people abandoned Christianity in order to pursue new ways of thought and new insights they themselves would build. But of course, Nietzsche was wrong. It's true that in our day we see very clearly that Western civilization has increasingly become more secular as God has been kind of systematically forced out from the public square but it is not true that Christianity has passed away. Christianity has not died out. Hundreds of millions of people around the world still consciously embrace faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And Christianity continues to spread in surprising places, places you wouldn't expect. Places like communist China and places like Muslim Iran. So here's my question. Why hasn't Christianity died out? Why hasn't it passed away? Well, given the incredible push against Christian morality and doctrine that we see in schools and universities and governments all around the world, why is it that Christianity persists and even expands throughout much of the world in our day? To borrow Nietzsche's phrase, why hasn't God died? Friends, Christianity has not been snuffed out because God is alive. God is not a, a philosophical construct. God is not just an idea. He's not a myth. God truly exists, and the God who truly exists is glorious. He is eternal. He is self-existent. He is infinite. In himself, God is the source of all being, so that anything that exists only exists because God actively permits it to exist. He holds all things, Hebrews tells us, by the word of his power. He's doing that even now, our God is the living God. We'll see in our passage this morning that our God is the I am. So Nietzsche, who triumphantly declared the death of God, died of syphilis in an asylum at the age of 55. But our God is the I am, the ever-living one. He lives forevermore. And that fact gives us great confidence as we seek to live for him in this life. We're continuing our study of the book of Exodus. Last time we were together three weeks ago, we looked at chapter 2, verses 11 to 25, and we really thought together about the preparation of Moses for the great work that he would do in leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, and the first part of his preparation was un, un, uh, unexpected. Uh, he was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. He was brought up in the courts of Pharaoh. He was given the best possible education. For 40 years, he learned all the wisdom of Egypt, but we also saw that Moses needed more than the wisdom of Egypt. He also needed humility. And so after a failed attempt by Moses to lead the people out of Egypt on his own, he was forced into the wilderness of Midian. He had to run for his life. And there he learned humility as he served as a, as a lowly shepherd for the next 40 years. But after 80 years, 80 long years, he was finally ready for the task that God had prepared for him to do. He's ready to do his life work, this rescue of God's people from Egypt. And so in, in chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 4, verse 17, we see the commissioning of Moses. Uh, we see God come and speak to Moses and, and commission him to be the one who would lead the people of God out of slavery in 
Egypt. Now this morning we're going to be studying, Lord willing, all of chapter 3. And next week, Lord willing, we will study verses 1 to 17 of chapter 4. As we do so, I think one of the things that flows out of this passage so clearly is the glorious character of God. Uh, The character of God is on full display in these passages. And we're going to see that over the next two weeks. So we look at verses 1 to 22 of chapter 3 this morning. We see five truths about God's character that that just shine forth from the text. So that's our outline if you're taking notes this morning. Five truths about God's character from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. The first truth, first point this morning is that God is holy. We're going to see that as we look at verses 1 to 6. Second, we're going to see that God is compassionate. See that verses 7 and 8. Third, we're going to see that God commissions his people. We'll see that in verses 9 to 12. Fourth, we're going to see that our God is living. We'll see that in verses 13 to 15. And fifth, we're going to see that our God is sovereign when we study verses 16 to 22 together. So if you have your copy of God's word, look with me, if you will, at verses 1 to 6. Let's look at that first truth together. God is holy. Let me read those verses again. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. And as Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Verses 23 to 26 of chapter 2, we see this really beautiful picture of God looking down upon his people and their suffering in Egypt aware and caring deeply about their suffering. Now in verses 1 to 6, what happens is this good and kind God, he comes and, and the narrative shifts away from Egypt, now to Midian, now to where Moses is, actually down on the Sinai Peninsula. And, and it shifts from the suffering of God's people really to the one who God will raise up to lead his people out of their suffering. And that, of course, is Moses. And what has Moses been doing? For 40 years, Moses has been shepherding flocks. But do you notice he hasn't even been shepherding his own flocks? He's been shepherding the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. This is a humble position. For 40 years, the Lord has Moses doing something he probably never would have imagined he was doing. And yet it was all part of the preparation that God had for Moses. Now in verse 1 and 2, kind of the end of verse 1 to verse 2, we see how the Lord revealed himself to Moses. So Moses is shepherding Jethro's flocks. He's in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, He's on a mountain, a mountain called Horeb, or we know it more uh, frequently as Sinai. Today, Horeb or Sinai is known as Jebel Musa. It is a 7,500 foot mountain that just kind of comes out of the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. And we we should understand that when Moses first steps foot on that mountain, there was nothing particularly special about it. It was just another mountain. But what makes this mountain special is what God does there as he reveals himself to Moses, right? The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush. So now who is the the angel of the Lord? Uh, If you remember when we study through Genesis, the angel of the Lord appears twice in Genesis. In Genesis 16, he appears to Hagar and rescues her. 
In Genesis 22, he appears to Abraham in that really uh, important scene where Abraham's son is spared, Isaac is spared. This angel is clearly not a created angel. Uh, Instead, as you read through the narrative, when the angel of the Lord speaks, God himself is said to speak. And, And so we should understand that when the angel of the Lord appears, the Lord himself is appearing. This is what theologians would call a theophany an appearance of God, though it's an appearance of God in a veiled form where those who see him are not consumed by his glory. Actually, many commentators believe more precisely that the angel of the Lord is is really the pre-incarnate Christ uh, coming and serving his people, those who will receive redemption. I personally take that view. At any rate, in verse 2, Moses sees a burning bush. Now, it's very possible that Moses had seen something like this before in the sense that bushes will catch on fire, sometimes spontaneously, just because of the heat of the, of the desert and the wilderness there on the Sinai Peninsula. But there was something uh, very unusual about this bush. It was on fire, but it was very clearly not being consumed by the flames. And so Moses does what we would do. He goes over to investigate this miracle. What's going on? And when he does, though, that's when his life changes forever. He didn't wake up that morning thinking, you know, today is the day God is going to appear to me. No, God works in his own timetable in in our lives. And he appears in his own timetable. And he does. He appears to Moses and he calls him by name. Moses, Moses. Now, the last time God had spoken to a man was when he spoke very clearly to Jacob and encouraged Jacob that he should go down into Egypt with his family. This is some 400 years previous. This means that 400 years have gone by of silence and suffering for God's people, where there is no word of the Lord to them. But now God spoke to Moses, and the first thing that God says to Moses is for him to take his shoes off. Verse 5, do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now, commentators give different reasons for why they think God commanded Moses to take the sandals off of his feet. Uh, Some understood that these sandals had been walking on unholy ground, and so now that they are on holy ground, they they shouldn't be worn. They should be taken off. Others believe God wanted Moses to take his sandals off as a sign of respect for God, and I think that's the right view. This was a way of showing respect, and Moses needed to show respect because he was dealing with the living God. Then Moses was spoken to again by the Lord, and he says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so so God reveals himself to Moses, not as a distant deity, but, but as the covenant God of his people, of his fathers, of his ancestor. There's a relationship here. How did Moses feel when he realized that the living God was speaking with him? Well, we don't have to wonder. Look at verse six. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, there's a lot that we could say from these verses, but what comes out most clearly from these verses is that our God is holy. So let me ask one question and make one application before we move on. What does it mean that God is holy, right? So in in verse 5, when God says to Moses that the place where he's standing is holy ground, that's really the first place in the Bible where that word holy is used kind of in connection with God. What does it mean? The, The word itself speaks of separation, And when we say that God is holy, we're saying that God is separate from all other reality, all other things, everything else that God has created. In other words, God is unique. He's in a class by himself. God stands apart from his creation. And holiness also speaks of the fact that our our God is morally perfect. 
in a way that we as sinful creatures are not. And that's why Moses needed to take his sandals off of his feet. He needed to understand that there was a separation between him and God. He needed to understand that it was good and right for him to reverence God in his heart as he drew near to him. And the application for us is that just like Moses, when we draw near to God and worship, there should be reverence in our hearts. Now, it's true that we are, we are um, because we are in Christ, we are the sons and daughters of God. Uh, it's true that we've been given amazing access. We talked about it earlier, prayed about it earlier, where we can have boldness to come into God's presence and, and make our requests to Him. But there's a difference between being bold before God and being flippant with God. And we should never be flippant with God. There should always be a sense in our hearts that we are dealing with the living God who is holy. So when we draw near to God in the study of his word in prayer, when we gather together on the Lord's day on Sunday mornings, we gather together to worship God, there should be a reverence in our heart as we think about the fact that in a special way, we are together drawing together for the sake of worshiping this holy God. And this, by the way, is, is why we have, uh, or it's one reason why we have a moment of silence before the service begins. You notice we transition kind of from, from the announcements, and then we pause, and we have a moment of silence. Why do we do that? We do that because we want to have time to think about what we're doing. Uh, that we together as the people of God in this place, in this church, are gathering together in order to worship the holy God. And we want to do that rightly. We want to do that respectfully. We want to do that reverently. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 gives us a sense of what that, should, what that should be like. It says, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So don't just let that moment of silence go by. Use it as a, a weekly reminder that we together are going into the presence of God in a special way and that this is the living God and he's holy and we should worship him with reverent hearts. We look at verses 1 to 6, we see that our God is holy. In verses 7 and 8, we learn a second truth about our God. We learn that our God is compassionate. In the 19th century, a Princeton theologian named Benjamin Warfield, he once did a, a study of Jesus entitled The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And what he did is he went through the Gospels and he pulled out all the places where, where Jesus is said to have experienced emotion. And the emotion that Jesus experiences in his ministry most often is the motion of compassion. Jesus was full of mercy. Uh, Jesus was touched by the suffering of others. He cared deeply about others in their need. And that makes perfect sense because Jesus is God. And what is God like? Well, in verses 7 and 8, we see that our God is full of compassion. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Again, in chapter 2, verses 23 to 26, you see that God is aware of the suffering of his people. But now here in these verses, God comes to Moses. Now, now God makes Moses aware. Moses knew about what the suffering was like some 40 years ago. But now God comes and lets Moses know that he's aware of the suffering of his own people in Egypt. And then he cares about it. He said, I've observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them 
crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their suffering. Now, when you just read those words on the surface in verse 7, it can sound just like the Lord saying, I know about this. This is true. I know that this is, this is going on as if it's nothing more than simple knowledge. But it's very clear, particularly when you look at verse 8, that it's more than just simple knowledge. Now, you see that God cares, that he's moved by the suffering of his people. How do we know that? We know that because in verse 8, God says what he's going to do. He's been moved to come and rescue his people, to deliver them from their suffering, to bring them out of their slavery. God is moved by compassion towards his people in order to rescue them from their slavery and to bring them into a sweet and wonderful land. So what we see in verse 8 there, he's going to bring them out of Egypt to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That word rescue there, it literally speaks of, of kind of being snatched away. And so it's like the people of Israel in the grasp of Pharaoh, but God's going to swoop down like an eagle and just snatch away his people from Pharaoh's grasp and then take them to a wonderful and good land. He shows us that our God is a God of compassion, that our God knows the suffering of his people, that our God cares about the suffering of his people, and that he is committed to rescuing his people. Listen to Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So brother or sister, do you ever question if God cares about your suffering? You know, the suffering that you're experiencing this morning. It was interesting, just walking around talking with people this morning, several different people were sharing with me ways that they are experiencing suffering this morning. And that's true, really, of all of us. Some are in a scary battle with cancer. Some of us kind of face the draining daily battle with chronic pain. Some of us are suffering because of the emotional neglect of a husband or of a wife who should love us. Some of us are struggling with wayward children. Some of us are struggling with mental illness. Some of us are lonely because we have a hard time building meaningful relationships with others. Some of us have a difficult boss who seems bent on making our lives as miserable and as possible Monday to Friday. You know, this morning we sang these words, mine are tears and times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through this valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. It's a reminder that Christians suffer, and that's real. And in the midst of that suffering, it's very easy to think that God has somehow forgotten about us or that God doesn't care or that God is not interested in rescuing us. But it's not true. God does know and God does care. Brother or sister, God is compassionate towards you in your suffering this morning. He cares for you. He's going to help you endure the trial. And when the time is right, when he's accomplished all the good things that he wants to accomplish in your heart through the suffering, and when he's accomplished through you all the things that he wants to accomplish in this world through your suffering, when the time is right, he will rescue you from that suffering. He will do that because he is compassionate and he rescues his people. Now, I don't want us to move on without seeing just one more reality in verse 8. It's something I hope will help you as you study through Exodus, as we study through it together. I want us to see that the Christian life is Exodus-shaped. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 8. The Lord says there, I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And of course, we know because we've read the rest of the story that that's precisely what happens. 
when you read through the rest of the Pentateuch and into Joshua, you see that the Lord actually does come and rescues his people, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. And then he brings them back to Sinai, just as he told Moses that he would do. And there he enters into a covenant relationship with his people. And then he carries them through the wilderness, feeding them and providing for them. And he does that for 40 years until he brings them into the promised land. That's what God did for the people of Israel. Now think about what God has done for us. Like the people of Israel and Egypt, we also were enslaved. We were enslaved to sin and death and hell. But in Christ, we have been rescued from that slavery. And we've been brought into a covenant relationship with God so that he knows us in a special way as his people. And what's he doing right now? He's walking with us through the wilderness of this life on the way where to the true promised land to heaven, to a new heaven and a new earth where we will be with him forever. We need to understand that all of this was written, all of this occurred not only because God is blessing this people, but because he's blessing his people for all times. And that includes us. And that means that this book, Exodus, has a lot to teach us about how we are supposed to understand reality, our own experience in reality, and what God is doing. And listen, what God will be faithful to do. He was faithful to his people as he brought them through the wilderness. Brother or sister, he will be faithful to you as he takes you through the wilderness of this world. And the day will come when just as the people of Israel entered the promised land, so you one day will see Christ face to face in a new heaven and a new earth. And praise God for that. Friend, if you're with us this morning, you're not a, a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, you understand yourself to be someone who's not trusting in him for salvation I want you to understand that, that when we speak about salvation, we're talking about something that you need. And this isn't just for people who are more religious, perhaps, or who like reading the Bible or like gathering together on Sunday mornings. But the problem of sin is a problem that we all have because each and every one of us was born sinful and separated from God. God is a good and holy creator. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, the Bible is not a collection of religious sayings about how to have a, a nice life. The Bible is a story of God's work of redemption. And it starts with creation where God made us in his image, made us to have a relationship with him, made us to walk with him, to love him and to serve him. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they turned against God. They rebelled. They went their own way. They determined to be better, to do what they wanted to do as opposed to what God had commanded them to do. We sinned in them, and because we come from them, we've all inherited that same sinful nature, so that by nature, it feels very natural and right for us to live life as if we are the king or queen of our own universe, charting our own path, fulfilling our own destiny, doing what we want to do, being true to ourselves. And that is the nature of sin. Sin leads us to turn away from the true God and to turn kind of in on ourselves. And that sin manifests itself in rebellion against the commands of God that have been written on our hearts. That, that sin manifests itself in the ways that we harm others because we prefer ourselves over them. And we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says no one will ever be good enough for the holy God. Uh, none of us can be good enough for him. We've already failed that test. But the Bible says this, that God is a good and glorious Savior. That's the good news we can hold out to you this morning, that this God who is the judge is also the Savior who rescues those who are enslaved. And friend, that's the, the language that the Bible uses to speak about your sin and about my sin, that I once was enslaved to sin. You now, if you are outside of Christ, if you haven't trusted in him, your sin that feels like freedom, or it's actually chains, 
and it is holding you fast. And there is no way that you can kind of extricate yourself from that. The only hope you have is that there is a sovereign and omnipotent God who loves you, and he has demonstrated his love for you, and that he sent Jesus. And who's Jesus? Well, he's the Son of God. He came into this world as a man, and he lived a perfect life. Why did Jesus come into this world? Not just to say nice religious things. He did teach the truth of God, but he came most especially for this reason, in order to seek and save the lost. He's a glorious, good physician. He came to lay down his life on the cross as a sacrifice. He came to bear in himself on the cross the penalty of the sin of all who will ever turn from their sins and trust in him. He came to die, and he died, but then he rose from the dead. And the good news for you this morning is that if you will turn from your sin and from living for yourself and instead put your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone, his perfect life of obedience to the Father, that will be credited to your account and all of the ways that you sin against God, it will all be forgiven. And you must understand because God will be, uh, he will owe nothing to anyone. You must understand that this is a free gift that's offered to you this morning if you will receive it. If you will turn from your sins now and put your trust in Jesus, and that's our prayer for you, that you would know what it is to be rescued from slavery to sin, and you would find life in Christ. If you have questions about that, we'd love to talk with you about that after the service this morning. You could talk with me. You could talk with any of the pastors in the church. You could really talk with anyone around you what God has done for them, and they will tell you about Jesus, and we hope that you'll do that. You see, friend, God is compassionate, And even now, he's being compassionate towards you. How? He's telling you how you can be saved. He's giving you the most important message you will ever hear. He's doing it now because he loves you. Our prayer is that you'll receive that message and you'll trust in Christ this morning. Friends, our God is compassionate. Third truth, God commissions his people. Look at verses 9 to 12. So because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God on this mount." As I studied these verses this week, I couldn't help but think about what it must have been like to be Moses hearing these words. I mean, the first part was fine in verse 9. So because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, and I've also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore, I imagine Moses must have been okay with that. And I think he was probably thinking that God was going to continue this way. And because I've seen their oppression, I'm going to go rescue them with my mighty right hand. But do you notice that's not what God says? No, Moses would have been shocked in verse 10 when he says, therefore go, I'm sending you to rescue my people, to lead them out of slavery in Egypt so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But you know what? That's what God does. God commissions Moses to be the one who would lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. That is a tremendous task. You know, God could do it all on his own. God didn't need Moses, and yet God condescends to use Moses, and he gives him this glorious commission of rescue, and this is a great thing. Now, think about who Moses was. He's a shepherd of sheep in the wilderness, and God says, you're going to take on the mightiest ruler of the age, and you're going to win. 
It's a remarkable thing. God commissions his people. Now, Christ Fellowship, think about the fact that Moses isn't the only one who has received a commission. Uh, We read the commission we received earlier in the service. Larry read that for us from Matthew 28, where we've been given a very similar commission. Moses is commissioned to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. We've been commissioned to go and take the message of salvation so that those who are enslaved might be, uh, enslaved might be set free from their bondage and might know true freedom in Christ. We've been given this glorious message to share with our neighbors and our family and our friends. Jesus came near and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Well, friends, Moses' commission was glorious. But when you think about it, our commission is more glorious. Moses' commission was to rescue people from physical slavery. Our commission is to be used by God to rescue people from spiritual slavery. Our commission is more glorious because the salvation we proclaim is more glorious. It's not temporal. It's eternal. And think about it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've received that great and glorious commission. King Jesus has given that to you. Now, when we think about that, It's easy for us to be afraid, overwhelmed by that, right? It's true. Now, look what happens to Moses in verse 11. Moses is fearful, isn't he? He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt, right? Over the course of 40 years, Moses has learned something about himself. He's rightly learned that he is little and weak and isn't able to do great things. But do you notice that Moses wasn't thinking correctly? Why not? Because he was forgetting something. Moses was forgetting God. And that's why God says what he says in verse 12. I will certainly be with you. No, God doesn't turn to Moses and said, actually, you're a pretty great guy. Think of how smart you are. Think of all the resources you have. He doesn't say that. No, he says, I will be with you. What's he saying to Moses? He's saying, you're going to be okay because you're not alone. I'm going to be with you. And the day is coming when all the people of Israel and you are going to worship God on this mountain and you will know on that day that I have been with you. On his own, Moses is unable to rescue the people. With God, he will do it. Now think about our situation. We've been given this commission. How many of us can save a soul from death? How many of us can wrestle someone intellectually into the kingdom? None of us. We are incapable. Now listen to the last thing Jesus says in the Great Commission. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now does that change your perspective about the commission we've been given? God actually doesn't expect us to do it on our own. He expects us to do it by his power. And he promises that that he will be with us. And so our hope is in God that this God will be with us always as we seek to make disciples of King Jesus. You know, I experienced this reality in, in kind of a special way when Missy and I served overseas in Turkey as missionaries for a few years. Kind of wondered ahead of time what it would be like. You have a relationship with God in your own culture. You're raised up. You go to church. You wonder, what's it going to be like in some other nation? And yet, when I was there, I remember sitting out on the balcony, and I would be reading the Bible. I'd be praying for Muslim friends, and God was there just in the same way that God is here. 
And friends, that's encouraging to know that as we seek to be faithful, to make disciples of those who are lost, as we seek to be used by God in one another's life, teaching each other how to obey all that the Lord has commanded us, God is with us in that task. We are often like Moses. We look at our inadequacy. We think, I can't share the gospel. I don't know the Bible well enough. Uh, They may ask a question that I can't answer. I may end up doing such a poor job that I push them away from Jesus. And Satan is in our heads the entire time telling us, look at yourself and look at your resources and look at how weak you are and look at how incapable you are. And Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says what? I will be with you. So this week, we have the privilege and opportunity of spending time with people who don't know Jesus. This week could be the week when we open our mouths and we give this message, simple message of Christ crucified, and see people who don't know Jesus come to faith in him. And God does the work. Isn't it amazing to think that God does the work? He commissions his people and he helps his people and he will help us as we seek to make disciples of King Jesus. A fourth truth, God is living. God is living. When Moses saw the burning bush on the mountain, he was amazed. He was amazed because the bush was on fire, but the bush was not being consumed by the fire. You see, the flame was a living flame. Uh, The flame had energy in and of itself. It had life in and of itself. It was nourished by its own life. And Moses is perplexed by this phenomenon, and he draws close to to see it. But, But he doesn't realize that when he's gazing upon the burning bush, God is actually showing Moses what God himself is like. That God is dependent upon nothing else in any way. That God has life in himself. That God is the living one. That he's the I am. And that's what we see in verses 13 to 15 when the Lord speaks. Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord The God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. In verse 13, Moses is asking a logical question. He says, okay, if I'm the one that's supposed to go and tell the people of Israel that, that God has sent me to you, well, what happens if they ask me about God? What's his name It's very clear that even though Moses had grown up with Hebrew parents, at this point, he doesn't have a personal relationship with God. That's what's occurring on the mountain. This personal relationship is happening. And so he asked the Lord what he should say if the people of Israel ask what God's name was. Now, we should understand that by asking what his name was, he's not talking really about his proper name. Actually, he's talking about God's character. The the proper name of God, Yahweh, was known by the people of Israel. For instance, Moses' mother's name was Jochebed, which means Yahweh is glorious. So the name was known, but what was needed was not the proper name. What was needed was the nature, the character. What is God like? That's really what Moses is asking here, and that's why God responds the way he does in verse 14. And the response is breathtaking. God says, I am who I am. The Lord's name is the I am. What does that mean? It comes from the Hebrew verb for the, for the word to be. 
God is the one who simply is. God is the one who is what he is. It means that God has no beginning or no end. It means that God is eternal. It means that God is immutable or that God never changes. He is what he is and he never changes from that. It means that God depends upon nothing. That God is self-existent. That God is self-sufficient in every way. It means that God is the one who has life in himself. That God is the one who himself is the source of life for all. All other creatures derive their being from him. God alone is the living God. Now, think about how encouraging that name and reality would have been to Moses as he's told now to go to Pharaoh and to tell Pharaoh, let God's people go. Imagine how encouraging it would be to the people of Israel to hear that the I am was committed to setting them free from slavery. Their God was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the focus isn't on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who are just people. The focus is on God, who is faithful to his covenant people. Their God was eternal, unchanging, self-existent, self-sufficient, I am. So Pharaoh might have been mighty, but what is Pharaoh in comparison to God? That's the idea. Brothers and sisters, God's name is an encouragement to us as well. Listen, only God is eternal. Only God is unchanging. Only God is self-existent. And those are really staggering facts. If you think about it for more than five seconds, your brain will just go, to think about what it means that God has always been. That God dwells outside of time. That God is an endless fountain of life. That all things have their existence in him. And if he ceased to uphold them for one nanosecond, they would be gone. This is a God that we worship. This is the God the Bible declares. And one of the amazing things about our God is that this is the God who imparts life to his children. And it's eternal life. So even now, brother or sister... If you belong to Jesus, you possess eternal life. Uh, And the best way I know to say it is that you possess the life of God within you. And that life will continue on forever and ever and ever. So physically, we will grow old and weary. Physically, we will die. But then for endless ages, this God who communicates life from himself will communicate perfect and full life to his children forever and ever and ever, so that every moment of eternity we will know the infinite overflowing goodness of God who gives us life and health and joy forever and ever and ever. And how is that possible? It's possible because of who God is, because he is the I am. We should be encouraged because we belong to the I am. We will live forever in a perfect world with him. There's no better hope. You know, that's better than a big 401k. That's better than that next promotion. That's better than than kind of the American ideal of working for 55 years and then playing for the next 30 until you die. There's something more to be lived for. This God is worth living for. And we will live with him and for him forever and ever. There's 
Very briefly, a final truth this morning. God is sovereign. Look at verses 16 to 22. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have appeared to me and said, I paid close attention to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised you that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to what you say. Then you, along with the elders of Israel, must go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. However, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that he will let you go. And I will give these people such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman will ask her neighbor and any woman staying in her house for silver and gold jewelry and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, so you will plunder the Egyptians. In these verses, Moses is told what God will do. Actually, the, the Lord uses the word will ten times in these verses, letting Moses know precisely what's going to happen. That Moses is going to go to the Israelites and tell them that the Lord has sent him to deliver them and they will receive him. That the, the Lord will send him to Pharaoh and Pharaoh will not listen. But then after God strikes Egypt with his miracles, well, then Pharaoh will listen. And then he says that the people will not leave Egypt empty handed. Uh, but in, in a way that no one would expect, the Egyptians themselves are going to enrich the people of God. So that the people of God have been slaves for hundreds of years, but now God, as it were, is going to give them their back wages. And they're going to leave Egypt rich because of God. And of course, that is precisely what happened. So what is happening in verse 16 to 22? What is happening is that a sovereign God is making his sovereign purposes known to his servant. And because God is sovereign, all that he declares will come to pass will come to pass. Now think about what that means for us. God said all of that to Moses. What has God said to us? Hasn't God said good things to us? Hasn't he given us a good word? Hasn't he told us that he will win? Hasn't he told us that Satan will be defeated? Hasn't he told us that we will live endless days in a new heaven and a new earth? So why should we be fearful? And I don't mean experience the emotion of fear. Why should we as the people of God be characterized by fear and anxiety? Wars will come, even the last war. Economies will weaken, economies will collapse, doctors will give difficult diagnoses. In short, life will be filled with hardships, there will be difficulties along with the blessings. But listen, the end is not in question. Because God has told us what will happen, and because God is sovereign, what he has said will happen will indeed come to pass. And so we fight each and every day in this spiritual battle, and it is a battle, and we fight each and every day from the standpoint of the ultimate victory that has been promised us in Christ. Praise God, he is sovereign, and we are his. In 1882, Friedrich Nietzsche uh, triumphantly declared that God is dead. But we've seen in our passage that that was not true then and it's not true now. We've seen that our God is the living God. And because he lives, we will live forever and ever. And we can have great confidence as we live for him even this week. And may God help us do that.
Let's pray.